0: I'll be reading today chapter 9, verse 27, through to verse, chapter 10, verse 16 in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 27, reads as follows. As they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant, go on the head of us. And the servant did so. But you stay here a while, so that I will give you a message from God. Chapter 10, verse 1 says this. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zilzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found. Now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you'll go to Gibeah Gibeah of God, where is the Philistine outpost. And as you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, flutes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal, and I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do." As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled the day when they arrived at Gibeah. A procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he joined their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, what is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man who lived there answered, who is their father? So it became a saying, is Saul also among the prophets? And after Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. Now Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, he said, But when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul replied, he assured us that the donkeys had been found, but he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about his kingdom. Pastor Tim.
1: So sorry if you hear the door slamming out there. We got a little bit of wind, so... I uh, hope that isn't too distracting. we want to invite our children to Children's Church. Uh, Aida will meet you back there. Or not. That's okay, too. <laughs> Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, uh, we do pray that you would lead us to the cross. Um, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has changed everything. The world is no longer the same because God has come and risen and leads us in his kingdom. And so, Lord, I I thank you for your graciousness to us in that fact. And uh, I just pray that your church would drink in that reality more every day, that that Jesus has come. (sighs) Can't ever get past that. That is the most important message for us. Uh, Father, we have um, a handful of folks who are not well, who are uh, part of our church, and we just want to pray for them. Lord, Kathy is with her mom. Uh, who is not doing well. And we just pray that uh, that you would bless Kathy with a sense of grace and, um, and stillness in her heart, that she would love and comfort her mother. And Lord, if her mom is, uh, if her time has come and, and it's time to go home to you, then we pray that you would have mercy on her and, and that she would go gently and, um, and be received into your arms. And, and Lord, we pray for the family that they would be processing uh, the illness of their mom uh, through the, the lens of the gospel of who Jesus is. So have mercy on them. We pray. Um, Father, I also want to pray for Dan's sister Ruth um, and the complications that she's going through the uh, up and down of her health, but uh, also her, um, her mental stability and, and uh, conservatorship and all of those issues. Lord, I pray that you grant Dan the, um, an extra measure of wisdom, uh, an extra measure of grace in dealing with these questions and these issues that he would um, do what he can, but not more than uh, is required um, or ask of him, and that he would be a blessing to his sister who may not understand everything that he's doing for her. So have mercy on that family as well. And Lord, I want to lift up Lisa, my wife, to you and ask that you would heal her, um, that uh, the um, the blocked saliva gland or whatever it is that's, that's causing her so much pain, Lord, would you lift that from her? But in the meantime, when the pain is so severe, would you remind her that um, even in the midst of the pain and the struggle, you still love her and that you are with her and that you care for her. And Lord, may she lean uh, mightily upon you. And so have mercy on her too. Uh, Lord, we pray now for your word as we come to the scriptures. Would you show us what you have to say this morning? Holy Spirit, have us uh, obey what it is that you're teaching us and to follow in uh, the the word of God, because, Lord, we want to be more like Jesus. We want to be conformed to his image. And this is one of the ways, one of the most important ways that you do it is through your word. So be with us now, we pray. Amen. So just for clarification, Lisa's got something going on on her cheek. It's really swollen and really painful. So that's why she's not here. Um, And um, that's why I was praying for, just kind of fill you in on what's happening. Um, Sometime during President Trump's uh, term in office, a friend of mine who lives in Nashville, who is very much not an evangelical, uh, sent me a private message on Facebook. And he said, what do evangelicals mean when they say God put Trump in office? And I thought that was a pretty good question. I mean, for somebody who doesn't understand um, what we mean by that, you know, and I I was flattered that he came to me for an answer, that he trusted me to answer him. So I said, well, um, some people would take that to mean that President Trump has been sent by God to be the president at this time to restore Christian influence And um, and the Christian bedrock of our society and that he is sent to deliver America, even though he may not be a good and righteous man. Um, They would compare him to King Cyrus, who was a pagan king, but he restored Israel to their land and funded the building of the temple. And so some some people see it that way. And uh, so he said, well, what do you think? And uh, I said, I don't think they're wrong. And I'm pretty sure I heard the gasp here from. Um, in Nashville. And so let me explain what I mean by that. Um, the Bible teaches that God puts rulers in authority. It, it teaches that a king is a king because God put them there. Um, what it also teaches is that that could be a good king or a bad king. It was King Cyrus who God put on the throne. It was also King Nebuchadnezzar who killed a man's sons and gouged his eyes out. So it could be good, it could be bad. Um, It's not always the ones that we like. So we could say, yes, God put President Trump in the White House, but we would also in the same breath have to say he put Obama there too, and Biden. We could say that God put President Reagan in the White House, but we'd also have to say that he put President Clinton and President Nixon in the White House. We could say that God put Constantine on the throne to make Christianity, an accepted part of the Roman Empire, but we would also have to say he put Diocletian on the throne and persecuted the church, and you could keep going on. So uh, the point I was trying to make with him is, is they're not wrong in saying God put him on the throne. What they're wrong is saying he only puts the ones on the thrones that we like. That That's just not the case, and, and what I find really fascinating about that whole concept of God put President Biden in the White House, he put President Trump in the White House, he put President Obama in the White House, he put President Bush in the White House. All of that is, we're a democracy. We did that, we voted, I voted in these elections. I I put my little checkbox on there. I voted in those elections. So how is it that God put them in the the White House? We did that. It's not like, um, for example, Great Britain. The Windsors have been on the throne for centuries, and Prince Charles became King Charles because he was next in line, and God gave him birth, and so he must have been the selected one to be the king, but in in a democracy, it doesn't work that way. So whoever winds up in the White House or number 10 Downing Street is put there by God. And so this morning, when we go through this story about this next increment of Saul being put into the, the throne, what we're going to see is how God could actually function like that in a democracy, because we're going to learn a lot about how subtle God can be in, in these workings. And so we're in, kind of in the middle of the story. We're in this story arc of, of Saul ascending to the throne. And it's going to take a while, you guys. It's, it's a long story. It's a long story arc. Um, it, it seems like it resets and starts over and over again, but it's actually heading in a direction in, in a trajectory. So why isn't he just the, the king as soon as uh, um, Samuel pours oil on his head? Well, Queen Elizabeth died September 8th. Prince Charles ascended to the throne. He is now King Charles, but he will not be coronated or, uh, crowned. They won't do the coronation service where they set the crown on his head until May. So it's not this instantaneous switchover. So it's going to take a while because this is not just picking a new king. This is changing the government of Israel from being ruled by judges to a king. So it's going to take some time. So just be patient. We're going to to go through this story a number of times in different iterations. Um, So we backed up to verse uh, 27 because it starts with an explanation of where we're at. Um, It starts with, uh remember last week, uh, Saul and his servant came to Samuel. Uh, Samuel told him to spend the night. They slept on the roof, and then they, um, they came down to leave. And Samuel meets him and says, tell your servant to go on. So where we're at is Samuel and Saul are alone on this road. And so it begins in verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him. And it said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over this people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. You didn't hear that this morning, did you? <laughs> no, Harlan read from the NIV. And, and the reason that there's a difference here is, is there's a textual problem at this point, problem at this point. Uh, I actually think the the NIV is correct. I think the ESV did a disservice by taking the longer version. The Hebrew reads like what Harlan said. Um, The most high rules over, I'm sorry, uh, um, the Lord anointed you to be prince over his inheritance, his, his heritage, that kind of thing. The shorter reading. The Greek version of the Old Testament has the longer reading. And so reading through the commentators, I did that so you don't have to. This is what I get paid to do is deal with these commentators is both both sides said, well, it's obvious that the longer reading is better or it's obvious that the shorter reading is better. And so I went through and I think the shorter reading makes more sense. Uh, The idea was a Hebrew uh, scribe, his eyes skipped ahead because it says uh, you've been anointed to be the prince over his people or his heritage. And so the, the idea was they skipped ahead and missed a big chunk. That is so uncharacteristic of Hebrew scribes. They they may miss a word, but you're not going to miss that big of a chunk. Um, It seems to me more reasonable that in the time between uh, the Old Testament being written and the New Testament being written, when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, that some Greek scribes said, oh, wait, we need to explain this a little bit and maybe expanded it a little bit. Um, That seems more reasonable uh, to me. So I think the shorter uh, reading is is the, the better one. Does that make a hill of beans? Does that make any kind of difference? Did it change any of the meaning? It's 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 just a question of how many words did Sam uh, Samuel speak at that point, and I think it's I think it makes more sense that he kept it short. Has God not appointed you prince over His inheritance? Um, so I want to go with the, with the uh, the the Hebrew version of it. We don't have any. Hebrew text that has the extra words, it's only in the Greek version. So, so that's what I'm, I'm going to go with. So what happens next is, is really fascinating. He, he pours oil on him, which is a standard, ancient Near East way of anointing, making somebody a king, because you didn't set a crown on their head to do it, that came later, you poured oil on them. And that oil would go down their head and into their clothes. And that was how you would anoint somebody, that's how you would appoint somebody to an office. So when Aaron and his sons are appointed to be priests, they, they pour oil on them, and that put them into that role. That was a way of symbolizing it. But what comes next is really fascinating. Samuel gives them prophecies. This is how you're going to know this is what's happening. He says, when you depart from me today, you'll meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin near Zela, Zel- Zel- Zelza, and they will say to you that the donkeys have been found. So remember before when uh, Samuel first came to the region of Zuf, he said, look, we're out of we're out of bread and dad's going to start worrying about us and give up on the donkeys. So maybe we should go home. Um, but the servant said, no, let's go talk to a man of God. So Samuel, when he met him, said, don't worry about the donkeys. They were taken care of. However, <laughs> they're going to be told again. So not only does he tell him roughly what will happen, he tells him where it's going to happen and what they're going to say. And he says, after that, then you'll go uh, to the oak of Tabor, and three men will be going up to God at Bethel, and they'll meet you. One will be carrying a goat, one will be carrying three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. And when they greet you and give you two loaves of bread, and you're going to take them. That that is just bizarrely specific, isn't it? Not one is going to be carrying an animal, one's going to be carrying some bread, some wine. It is they're going to be carrying um, a young goat and three loaves of bread. And specifically, you'll be offered two of those loaves of bread and you'll take them because remember, he ran out of food and he, that's why he was heading home. And, and so it's just so, so specific. And then after that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, which is the NIV translates as the hill of God. That's that's what Gibeath Elohim means, um, where a garrison of Philistines are. So we haven't heard about the Philistines since they gave up the Ark and there was a lot of peace and everything. Apparently, they have penetrated deep enough into Israeli territory to take this town and and put a garrison there. And so that's where you're going to go. And as soon as you get there, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place, playing instruments and prophesying. Then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now. This is a challenge here because what does it mean they will be prophesying? They're playing instruments and they're prophesying. We think of prophecy as thus saith the Lord. And, and that's, that's a good definition of prophecy. Is it is somebody speaking with the authority of God and saying, this is what God is saying to you. And that's who Samuel is. He is a prophet. He will announce. That's when you think of like Isaiah or Jeremiah. They are saying, thus saith the Lord. Um, but it appears, and, and I'm not the only one who said this, one of the commentators had the same thought, is it appears that prophesying had a broader meaning than just that. Um, it, it looks like what they were doing was ecstatic utterances, singing songs and just kind of rambling. And, and one of the Jewish commentators I read, he translated it not as prophesying, but as having ecstatic utterances. That's how he translated the phrase. Um and the reason you say that is because here they're coming with instruments in doing this. Later, when this happens again to Saul, he'll lay naked in the street all day, just talking. Um, later on in Israel's history, a prophet will be told to go in and anoint a man king. And so he'll go in and he'll do it and then he'll leave. And the men's friends will say, what did that crazy person want? So they looked at prophets not just as, oh, this is a sage, wise person who has God's words in his mouth, but sometimes they looked at him as like, they're nuts. And, you know, with Ezekiel, you kind of go, yeah, kind of was a little weird. (laughs) He did some bizarre things. He laid on his side, put a pan in the street and built a city in it and waged war. I mean, that's just weird stuff. So I think that might be what's going on here is it wasn't necessarily that saith the Lord, but it might have been these ecstatic utterances and these, these, uh, these phrases that just kind of come out of their mouth. But whatever it is, these prophets are coming down and Saul gets caught up in it. The spirit of the Lord rushes upon Saul and he does the same thing. Um, and so Samuel goes on, he says, um, you will be turned into another man. The spirit of the Lord has a way of doing that, doesn't he? Do was a, ch- a way of changing you? Uh, I'm so grateful for that. When I became a believer, I was set free from my lying, you know, pursuing whatever was cool and trying to be important and hip and everything. I was just kind of set free from that. And it's just so great to be made another man. What a blessing. He says that um, that's going to happen. And then he says, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. That's a curious phrase, do what your hand finds to do. It almost sounds like, you know, do whatever you feel like, you know, whatever feels good, go for it. But that's probably not what that means. In Judges 8, that same phrase, do what your hand finds to do, means go wage war against the Philistines. So it could be that Samuel is saying, when you get to Gibeah where the the, uh, Philistine encampment is, go wage war against them. Um, and one of the commentators was really firm about that. I'm not sure that's necessarily what's going on. I, I think it, it might be when you get there, there will be things to do. Go do them. Don't just hang out and do nothing. And then he says, um, then when you go down after that, go down before me to Gilgal, and I'll come to you and offer burnt offerings and, and sacrifice peace offerings. Wait for me seven days, and then I'll come and do that. And and then I'll tell you what you should do. So that's kind of the story. The the what's going on. So the way the author summarizes, he doesn't go back and retell the first two signs. Uh, he simply says he left, and God gave him a new heart, and all those things happened in that day. Kind of a summary real quick. So even before he gets to the prophets, God's given him a new heart. God's already at work in Saul to begin to change him into a new man, um, and, and there's more of it coming. And then he does say, though, when he came to Gibeah and he met the, uh, the prophets, this happened exactly what he had said would happen happened and this is where um, the phrase comes from he says when he when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets the people said to one another what has come over the son of kish is saul also among the prophets and a man of the place answered and who is their father therefore it became a proverb is saul also among the prophets And when he had finished prophesying, he went up to the high place. So there's a a, a proverb that shows up, and and Samuel's going to mention it a couple of times, where this came from. Um, And it's always when Saul is is overwhelmed and prophesies like that. So what does it mean, is Saul also among the prophets? Uh, What is the proverb trying to get at? One of the worst things to translate when you're doing interlanguage studies is Proverbs or you know, those, those kind of idioms, that kind of stuff. It's really hard to figure that out because, um, like, try to explain to somebody what a butterfly is who doesn't speak English. So it's milk from a cow that flies in the air. It's, just, it's hard to do. So what does is, what is Saul, is Saul also among the prophets mean? It probably means for real. Is that for sure? Are you, you know, is that a real thing? It's kind of that kind of, maybe it's kind of that skeptical kind of, is this even appropriate kind of way of approaching it? But it seems to be important because, like I said, the author is going to bring it up a couple of times and and say what happened. Now, one of the things that it says there is, somebody said, and who is their father? Some translations put, and who is his father, assuming it's talking about Saul. But they know who his father is because they just called him the son of Kish. So it's probably best to leave it as, who is their father? Okay, great. What does that mean? (laughs) I don't know. That didn't help. What that's probably talking about is when it says father, it's this group of prophets who is their leader, who is the leader of this prophets that would let Saul get in the middle of it and prophesy too. this guy's a yutz who is he that he would come and do this. And so that may be where the question came from it's, and that's kind of leans to understand that question or is Solomon the prophets is saying is this is this okay is this for real is this right because it doesn't seem right for that. So that's kind of the story of what ha- that happened. There's an epilogue after it in verses 14 through 16. And I'll come to that in just a moment. Um, Saul has gone there. He's gone up to the high place. And now he's waiting those seven days for, for uh, Samuel. So it raises the question, who made Saul king? Who, who, who did that? Because in verse one, it was Samuel whose hand took the, va- the, the jar and poured the oil on his head. In verses 2 through 7, it was Samuel who said, you're going to go here, you're going to go here, you're going to go here. It was in verse 8 that Samuel said, when you get there, wait for me. Don't do anything until I show up. So who made Saul king of Israel? It looks like Samuel did it. it Samuel is the one that, that is doing all this action. But we know better, don't we? we? We've got the other half of this. We've heard the other part of this. God is the one who said, tomorrow a man from Benjamin is going to show up, make him king and then Saul walks in from Benjamin and he made him king. And when Saul pours the oil on Samuel's or when Samuel pours the oil on Saul's head, Samuel said has not the Lord anointed you? I poured the oil has not the Lord anointed you? I'm simply doing the thing. And then when Saul goes and runs into these different signs, these different people at these different places, there's no possible way Samuel could have known that those events would happen just by thinking about it. He, he had to be operating as a prophet. And if he's a prophet, then it's God's who's telling these things. And these, these signs were not just nebulous horoscopes or, or fortune cookies. And, you know, something great will happen to you today, or, you know, you're going to cut ties with something that holds you back. Nothing that vague. It's very specific where you will be, what's going to happen and what they're going to say to you. So it's just far too specific. So we look at this and we go, we know that God is the one that is, that is installing Saul as king. That's how this is working. So what this begins to show is that God is sovereign over these big events. It is God who is putting Saul on the throne through human intermediaries. It's not that some um, light shines from heaven and, and lands on Saul and, and angels sing and this is now our king. God used intermediate means. He used people to do this. He used regular things to do that. So um, does that mean then that God is only big involved in the big decisions, right? God only is paying attention to who's going to be king. That's, That's on my agenda. I'm not going to worry about the other stuff. Go back and look at how God did this. How did God wind up making Saul king? Did Kish's donkeys just happen to wander off one night? Was it just, you know, and God looked and went, oh, Saul's Saul's walking around. We'll make him king. When was the last time God had any, any interaction with a beast of burden? There were two milk cows who had never pulled a cart before. And they were separated from their young, strapped to a cart. And what did they do? They walked in an orderly fashion straight to Israel. That was under God's control. That was how the Philistines did it. They said, if this happens, this means that Yahweh is the one who's bugging us. And it happened. So God's interaction with these animals, it wasn't just fortunate that, that, or unfortunate, depending on how you look at it, that the donkeys wandered off. This is under God's sovereign control. Was it just bad luck that Saul couldn't find them? Or was he just an inept person and couldn't follow a trail of donkey dung and, and figure out where they went? That was all within God's hands. He was able to do that. Was it just convenient that when they finally got to the land of Zuf, Saul was ready to give up? He'd run out of food by that point. Could have wound up running out of food anywhere at that point, but he wound up in the land of Zuf, ran out of food, and was ready to go home. Was that just pure accident? Was that just coincidence? Was it just a lucky choice that he picked the right servant who would happen to think ahead and say, hey, I'm going to take some silver with us just in case? And would happen to know, oh, by the way, there's a man of God. There's a seer in this town. Was it just happened to happen that way, right? And then once they get there, the timing just happened to be absolutely perfect, because when they show up, they run into some women going out to get water and say, hey, is there a seer here? Yeah, but you have to hurry because he's getting ready to go up to the high place. Run to the gate and you'll meet him. And that was just pure coincidence. And then Saul happens to exactly meet Samuel right there. Th- these are not coincidences. This is not random occurrences. This is God's sovereign hand working very subtly. Very, very gently in and through people's lives. It's much more, we get to see it in the big things, like who winds up in the White House or number 10 or on the throne. But it's all the other little things. We don't get to that unless God is controlling all these other little things too. So is God just a good guesser? No, he can't be just a good guesser. He's not just trying to figure this stuff out. God tells Saul, tomorrow, you're going to meet a man from Benjamin. And what happened? The next day, Saul met a man from Benjamin. God didn't just guess it. He had set all of these events into motion so that Saul would be there at the right time at the right place. This is supposed to be good news for us. Because when we're looking at what's coming up for Israel, Saul winds up on the throne. How does it go? it doesn't go well. So you could stop and go, well, they, they put the wrong person in. If they'd put the right person, if they'd gone with David from the very beginning, David's not even in the picture yet. So we can look at this and say, we wound up with a real jerk on the throne and God did that. God is the one who put Saul there. God is the one who will take Saul out. He will remove him from that position. It is God who's going to put David on the throne. And bless David. So this gives us this hope, this idea that God is actually working in human affairs, that God is actually doing things. All of these signs came to pass that day, not by coincidence, but because of God's design, because God had decided that that was what was going to happen. So it's God who puts presidents in office. Even though you vote and you should vote, if you're an American, you should be a very good American and you should vote and you should vote according to your conscience and according to informed understanding of what's going on so that you can vote wisely for your representative, for your mayor, for the dog catcher if it comes to that. You you should do those things, but you have to do them and look at it and go, that's not the be all and end all. We are going to wind up with the mayor we deserve. Well, even that's not true. Because if we wound up with a mayor, we deserve to be Satan sitting up there or something. No comment on how close we are, but you know what I mean. It's not what we deserve. What we have to do is look at that and go, you know what? The person who should be there, the one that God has chosen, that is who's going to be in charge. And I can vote my conscience and say, this is how I really believe this should go. Based on all the information I have, this is it. But then don't put your hope in that. Don't say, because we got the right person in the White House, life's going to be great. Saul, at this point, looks like the right guy, right? He's tall. He's handsome. He's rich. He's anointed by God. He Everything looks like this is going to be it. We got the right guy in the throne. And he turns out to be a real jerk. It doesn't go well. So don't count on human beings in those instances. We, we have these processes that God's given us. And I think democracy, just to be clear, is the greatest form of government man has ever created. It's the best way to do it because it's adversarial. It recognizes that there's sin, that there's greed, and it pits it against each other to keep it in check. It's probably the best we're going to come up with. I can't think of anything better. But it's not where we're ultimately going to wind up. When Jesus returns, there will not be an election for him. We won't vote for him. We won't have to campaign elect Jesus king, he will be the king. And so that is actually the better way to do it. Between now and then, we have these lumpy, weird, kind of odd forms of government, and we do the best we can. And yet God is still in control of all of those things. God is still sovereign. This has come up over and over in the, in the Bible. It's not something that's just brand new to the New Testament, although it is articulated pretty clearly in the New Testament. Um, uh, Romans 13, which I don't know where I wrote that down. So I'll just turn there. Romans 13 starts. See, this is old school, flipping pages. You remember how to do this? I keep doing that sometimes, trying to swipe it past. When I was installed, my previous pastor told me, don't use an iPad to preach from because they crash. So let me swipe to get the right one. Romans 13 starts this way. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This was written under Emperor Nero. Nero would take Christians, dunk them in tar, light them on fire, and use them to line the the walks in his his, uh, garden. Nero wasn't a very good guy, and Paul says, be subject to them. What Peter told us when we were back in First Peter is, honor the emperor, even the bad ones. Why? Because God has instituted these authorities. So we, we have to do that. But it wasn't just the New Testament that tells us that. In Daniel, in the book of Daniel, chapters 4 and 5, three times in chapter 4, once again in chapter 5, it repeats that the Most High puts the person on the throne that he wants to put on the throne. In Daniel... Where was Daniel? Daniel was in exile. He was in Babylon. And that was the message that his he was told is God puts the person on the throne he wants on the throne. Whether that's Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Cyrus, whoever it is, God has put him there. And for us, that means the reason that President Biden is president right now is because God put him there for good or for evil, for for good, uh, right reasons or whatever, that's what we got. And that's what we're supposed to be subject to. When we talk about how that happens and we get down to that that minutia, the Racy's car this morning, when they pull into the parking lot, when Heather got out, the back tire was hissing at her. Was God in control of that screw that wound up in that tire? boy, I hope so. If he wasn't, who knows what could happen? It's just all up in the air. When we think about these things, we have to process them with that idea that God is in control of these things and human agency is involved. We can still do stuff. We're not robots in the middle of this. That's what the picture here is, is Samuel poured the oil and God anointed Saul to be king. So we're looking through life and we're struggling. And so we kind of sometimes will ask, why, Lord? Why is this happening to me? We don't always get the answer. So was President Trump a blessing or a curse? Is President Biden a blessing or a curse? We won't know, it'll take years for us to see what the outcome of their actions are. We just, we can't make those decisions. We want answers now because we're used to getting it. Cause I read the Bible And I got to where with uh, the rest of Saul's story and I I was able to judge him and determine that he was a bad guy. But in life, that took years. It didn't happen in two pages. So we we go through life and we wrestle with this. This notion that God is sovereign, not only over the big things like who's in the White House, but over the little things is a comfort. It's intended to be a comfort. It's supposed to be something that helps us. For example, in Acts chapter 4, um, Peter and, and John got arrested for preaching in the temple. They were beaten. They were released. When they came back to the church, the church gathered and prayed. And this is what the church said in their prayers. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do horrible things. Nope, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They could only do what had been planned and predestined for them to do. And what did they do? They falsely accused and they murdered Jesus according to God's hand and his plan. Because in the moment, I mean, think about Peter, right? Peter denies him. He goes out into the night and he's weeping. I just picture him as tears streaming down his face. I can't believe I did that. Lost and confused. The Messiah, I thought Jesus was it, and he's dead. He's in a tomb right now. And I just, I don't know what's going on. Three days, he's lost like that. He, he's processing, how could bad things like this happen to Jesus? He was healing people. He was, he was curing blindness. He was casting out demons. He was preaching the word of God. How can bad things like this happen to him? Is God out of control? This doesn't happen to God's prophets. This isn't supposed to be like this. And then three days later, when Jesus appears, what did Peter do? He didn't walk. He didn't saunter to the tomb. He ran to the tomb. And when John stopped at the door, Peter charged in, I want to see. He was so excited. But in the meantime, he couldn't process that. His life was filled with pain and confusion and emptiness and loss. And he sat in it for a couple of days. And then he got relief. And so, when we're going through life and we have the pain and the loss and the confusion and the joy and the love and the satisfaction, and that all of that stuff is according to God's hand and his predestined plan. And so, we, we have to look at these things and say, God is in control of it. I, I don't need to panic. Now, that doesn't mean it is easy, the loss is real, the pain is honest. It's it's not like you should just, you know, be a stoic and go, well, God's in control, I don't have to feel anything. You weren't built that way, you were built to feel, you were built to experience this, and he wants you to cry out to him. He wants you to say, Lord, I don't understand why it's like this. Why am I suffering? Why is it like this? Make it go away. Because we don't know in the moment what his plan is, what his purpose is. When Jesus died on the cross and Peter looked at that and saw him laid in a tomb after denying him, he must have been shattered. And he couldn't at that moment just go, well, it's okay, God's in charge. It wasn't within him to do that. He wept. But when Jesus rose again, then he put it all together. It became whole. God had a purpose in this. So that when we get to Acts 4, you could say, they did according to your plan and your hand, let them do what they were going to do. You did that, Lord. Thank you for that. This is the same guy who got beaten and praised God that he was worthy of it. This idea of God's sovereignty in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our joy, in the midst of our pain and in the midst of our satisfaction is liberating. It is beautiful to think that way to understand I am, I remain in God's hands. Even though I'm suffering, even though I'm unhappy, even though I'm lost, even though I'm confused, even though I think life is great, everything is wonderful, it's all working together. We can stop in the middle of that and go, God is in charge. He has a purpose, he has a plan. He has a purpose for Saul. He has a plan for Saul. Saul will get to the throne. And so this is the, the, I think the most important lesson in this section. I think that's why we got those, Different signs say, "God's in charge, God's doing this." Even if we wind up with a putz on the throne, God's doing it, and He has a purpose in it, and He will accomplish His purposes, his good and right purposes for us. Because in the midst of all of that, there's one phrase we need to remember: Not only is God sovereign, God is good. He, he wants what's best for you. It's His desire that the best things happen for you. In the middle, they may look terrible. But in the end, God is going to work a great purpose in your life. And that's, that's a promise we need to hold on to and believe God is sovereign. The people who, who deny God's sovereignty and say he's just a good guesser, I don't get that. How could you ever counsel somebody? I'm sorry that your son died in a traffic accident. It wasn't God's fault. He didn't know what he was doing. He couldn't have prevented it. What kind of hope is that? Really, God is not in control. So I'm just wandering, I'm bumping around in this universe, and, and anything horrible could happen with no purpose. Don't bless me with that, brother. I want to hear God loves you and He cares. And, and it's terrible that your son died in a car crash, but God's going to work through it and He's going to bring it to a good conclusion. He's got a reason, and there's hope in that. Whatever that, that situation is, whatever you find yourself in the middle of at the moment, remember God's sovereign, He has a purpose, He has a plan. He does things with a reason and he will bring good to your life at some point in some way that you can't imagine right now. I'm so glad for that because I, I have screwed things up so many times. I'm just so glad somebody else is in charge. Let's pray. Lord, we we come to you in prayer because you are sovereign, because donkeys don't wander away because donkeys wander away. They wander away according to your plan and purpose. Lord, we come to you because you are that intimately involved with your universe, that that everything is happening according to your purpose and plan. And Lord, we're just so grateful that we get to be part of it. And yet, Lord, you haven't made us robots that just switch off our minds and our emotions. But Lord, through even those things, you accomplish your purposes. And So Lord, it, as, as events rise and fall in our lives, as feelings swell and fade, Lord, we pray that we would see you through the midst of all of that and know, Lord, that you're accomplishing some purpose in our life, that we can trust you in that. Lord, we ask that you would grant us this kind of faith in Christ's name. Amen.